Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is David Shields. He's the author of numerous best-selling books, including Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump. We spend some time talking about that book and reflecting on Trump's presidency in light of our nation's current pandemic struggles. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. It's wonderful to be here. I, I honestly loved talking with you every time. No, it's a great time. Uh, I always have a good time talking with you. And I, it is interesting that we're talking in maybe the strangest American context. I can't think of a time between the corona pandemic, the the racial unrest that the Floyd killing unleashed and then also just the the civic unrest i mean because there's the protest movement but then there's also these the riots and there's i mean i i couldn't imagine living in seattle right now i mean or portland where you know these things i mean it is a bizarre time to be alive and living in america and i i think it's this is um, probably the least controversial or least hot take I've ever said in my life. It seems like Trump's not helping. <laughs> right. I mean, I know you mean that he's, I mean, first of all, the, your first premise is obviously a true one that, I mean, the, I'm not trained as a historian, but it's hard to think of a time in American history and American culture that is more fraught with possibility of, of chaos and really unraveling of the Republic from Corona, obviously to Black Lives Matter, to Trump, to, you know, the election being under duress, it, you know, and that, I mean, I would go farther to say that Trump isn't helping. I would say, and I'm not sure that, that this is a very exciting or new hot take either, but to me, I think what's underappreciated about Trump is that he is a legitimate chaos agent. He really thrives in chaos. You know, there's a famous thing about how he likes employees to be squabbling amidst, you know, like if he has Trump Tower or whatever, he almost intentionally puts people at war with each other. And which, you know, is very echoic of his, the, the, the strife within Trump's family. He tries to replicate the relationship between his father and all of his father's children, in which they were endlessly squabbling for a little bit of daddy's love, which took the form of money. And that Trump thrives in chaos. He loves chaos. He is intentionally creating chaos. Um, you know, in Albuquerque, Portland, Seattle, everywhere else. And I, I even had a paranoid thought a while ago, which of course has proven true. I really felt it. I said this to people. I may even have said it to you and people sort of poo-pooed it. And now it's come true apparently, which is that I felt that Trump was intentionally allowing hoping that citizens in, in blue states died because he understood that a lot of the people at first who were dying of COVID were Democrats. And that, and that there was, you know, I don't know if you saw the recent Vanity Fair piece about. Yeah, the, about Jared yeah, Kushner. Yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah. specifically said it was not politically 
smart to to deal with with COVID was basically knocking off Democratic voters hour by hour. And the, I mean, that's is literally state sanctioned murder. And I felt that at the time that, you know, these people weren't in, um, you know, in Greenwich, Connecticut, they were in Queens and the Bronx and, and, you know, Seattle and Portland and LA and San Francisco, they weren't Trump voters. And now of course, Trump voters are dying. So anyway, what's my point amidst this sort of, of rambling discussion is this idea, yes, that we're in a chaotic state and it's not just that Trump isn't helping. He is, he is, you know, is reaping. He's, he's a legitimate chaos agent who loves chaos and that we're now in, you know, it could get truly insane. And so anyway, I'm trying to think of what to say that we haven't already said, which is that I think, you know, as I, as I try to argue in my book and elsewhere, he is, you know, a deeply and truly nihilistic person has no belief in any transcendental signifier. He, you know, it's like that, that Flannery o- O'Connor story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, in which, you know, he just wants, under, under the gun of mortality, he wants us to dance. And anyway, I don't know if you want to pick up this thread. I'm not quite finding the language to say it, but that he, you know, he is a classic figure of an anti-hero in a modernist novel, whether it's Ionesco or Dostoevsky or Camus, you know, he is our worst self reflected back to us. And he is, he, he, I don't know, I, all this stuff we probably... And, 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 and don't you think the irony is, generally we've thought, when we thought of nihilism, right, there's this sort of, in popular culture, there's characteristic of some like, there's a sort of uh, unreflective distillation of Nietzsche or something, which I don't think Nietzsche is an right. analyst, but, but that's what we get. We, it tends to be this left-wing kind exactly. of anarchistic sort of thing. But now the, the irony of ironies is you have conservative traditionalists rallying around a nihilist. I think that... The, the, I mean, this is, is a marriage of... This is a strange marriage of convenience and, and of chaos and destruction. I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's... I mean, they were hardly the first people to point out the ironies and hypocrisies and contradictions. I mean, so much of it is nomenclature. It's such a problematic idea to call what Trump is a conservative. I mean, what is he trying to conserve or preserve? In no way... I hate those terms of liberal and conservative. I mean, I wish we could say left wing and right wing or progressive. And I don't know. I, I just think the idea of Trump as a conservative, he is not trying to conserve or preserve anything. And I agree with you. It's just this unholy ma- marriage of convenience of, you know, this fascinating thing of Trump delivering, say, a Supreme Court justice or two to the right wing base paying utterly empty homage to the idea of no abortions. As we said before, I'm sure Trump has paid for 50 abortions. But, um, you know, the idea being that he, you know, it's classic bread and circuses in the sense that he gives a little bit of bread to people who don't need more bread, you know, a little bit of economic tax relief to the 1% and then to the people who, who vote for him in, you know, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, you know, it's obviously cultural wars that he delivers. And anyway, it's, um, I mean, he, it, and I think, isn't there such damage just on basic things? Like I had this, some exchanges recently about hydro, 
oxychlorine. And and again, there are some doctors that are saying it works preventatively. They're outliers right. right now, but but the FDA has said it's no, not everything we've we've all the studies we've conducted. It it doesn't help, and it could harm you. Uh, but but again, who knows? I mean, maybe down the road, uh, this is. But normally, with a normal president, right? This would not have Republican or Democrat. This a discussion about a drug in a pandemic would not have become a culture war, right? Exactly. Like or math. Or things like this, you know, but these things that should not. This is what my Canadian friends are saying to me, like every week. They're saying, "How the hell do you guys politicize every every issue related to a pandemic? It's just public health." And, and so, but I mean, again, don't you think it's Trump in the sense of if you'd had George W. Bush or somebody, we would not be politicizing hydroxychloroquine. I agree. Or again, we, we, there might be some outliers that say, "Hey, we should give this another right. study," and we'd probably give it another thought, but it wouldn't tear the culture. I agree apart. with. It. The way, the way now we're just we're having a culture war about a damn drug. It's or even, of course, wearing a mask. I mean, hydroxychloroquine, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is you know there's apparently at least the argument that he he and his family have financial ties to the company. It's not some coincidence that Trump says he takes hydroxychloroquine in every every morning he has there's you know not such obscure connections between the the manufacturer of that drug and the trump family i for, i can't quite isolate what those are but i've seen numerous reports connecting it's not some sort of random thing i mean so too the idea that in the the relief bill there's i think there's 1.5 billion dollars to have the fbi building move downtown in DC to make it as close (laughs) to, you know, Trump Tower as possible. I mean, I guess what's so fascinating, like, you know, the whole point is to sort of, as they say, kind of troll people like you and me. So that you and I are on this podcast and arguing about it. And I think like oh trying to go with the the more recent example, whether it's I mean, I guess what's so, so interesting to me, I'm trying to avoid having this just be the usual thing. You know, the year in, in my politics might not be the same. Or they, I think they're probably pretty close. But, and that, you know, I'm trying to think of saying something that for me, you know, how, how is it, it work that how in the world could wearing a mask become a political stance? I think that's the thing to unravel in that. I mean, what to me, it's crucial to have the left as a sort of straw man to argue against. And so, I don't know what I'm trying to get to here, Scott. Um, I mean, for instance, when Trump recently said, nobody likes me, you know, this recent thing. I mean, who in the history of, it would be like Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of soldiers are dying. And you have this sort of woebegone Abe Lincoln, who was in fact a deeply melancholy human being, but who actually you know, without sort of romanticizing Lincoln too much, you know, did have the Republic in, in the, the interests of the Republic's best interests. I guess the, the one I'm trying to get to is that Trump's narcissism and vanity and self-loathing and self-indulgence to me are, are in a way the most interesting thing about him because I think, I don't know, it's, it's a, the trillion dollar question is to what degree is Trump consciously sculpting a persona that is going to resonate with a kind of emptied out 
lower middle class? Or to what degree is it just sort of this happy, or for Trump, a happy synergy between himself and a forgotten white underclass? I mean, that to me, like the, the when you say nobody likes me, I think in a way, a lot of people in America who have been left behind sort of feels that. And so I don't know what your take on that is, that this sort of... I think it's right. I think, right. It's, I think, I think the narcissism kind of lets him be nihilistic and lets him do these bombastic and crazy things. But also, you know, he used to say things like, you know, the cabbies in New York love me and people in Queen. Like he's got that right. kind of, like he's, you know, this kind of connection to, or, or at least the ability to know... You know, the guy grew up in Queens, right? Not Manhattan. And I do think he somehow knows what... I mean, you and I have spent some time talking about this before, but there's this... You know, we're in a super complex global economy, right? Where you were... You know, there are jobs leaving that never come back, right? There, And then people are angry and frustrated and they're losing... And, you know, there, there's real despair and, and frustration. And rather than offer kind of hope and and honesty there's a kind of there's people to blame right it's democrats it's mexicans it's this it's that and he's just so good at it i mean because he's so entertaining i mean those rallies are are pure i mean goebbels would be like oh man if i could have had this exactly i mean like right like i mean i mean but they are because they are i mean they are such great theater and the thing is he does them in places that don't get a lot of theater Right. So, you know, he's going out to the outlying areas in different parts of the country. He's not having these things, you know, in, 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 you know, Villanova, Pennsylvania, in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, or, you know, like he's not right. having them in sort of affluent suburbs of major cities. He goes out to the, to, to places and, and they're like WWE Four. events. I mean, they're, they're, they're pro wrestling rise and they're entertaining. And I feel, you know, it's interesting because I've watched them, lots of them, and I feel guilty that I'm entertained. That's the key. But I am entertained. That's the key thing. I, I mean, I, I. That's the key. I mean, that's key for us to acknowledge that that he is. I mean, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. From you know, Joe Biden. You know, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden, but he's not. I mean, not only is he not entertaining, he's painful to listen to and to watch. He's so inept and he's so calm, he's so timid and everything has been vetted. I mean, he's some weird mix of Hillary and, 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 and Dwight Eisenhower in, with his stumbling syntax. And, you know, he's clearly showing the ravages of age. You know, I think he never has dealt with a childhood stutter. So he still is doing a lot of circumlocution of words. And you combine that with age and essentially you know, timid political personality. And he's, you know, the difference between him and Trump is really striking. I also think it's crucial, this line that I think I've quoted before, I quoted in the book by Louis Theroux, the British documentary filmmaker, who says, you know, that in a shame culture, being shameless gives you enormous leverage and power. And I think it's absolutely, you know, crucial to Trump's strategy. You know, he, you know, that when I did, my Marshawn Lynch movie, uh, the the Village Voice. I had a press screening of it in New York uh, a year ago, and the 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 former Village Voice performance art critic Laurie Stone came to the screening, and she said, you know, that Marshawn Lynch is sort of of like a, a downtown 1970s or 80s performance artist for whom the key things are never explain, never apologize, and never ask for love. 
And, you know, in a way it connects to Trump that he never explains exactly. He definitely never apologizes. And in a way, he never asks for love. Although what is interesting, I mean, I've said this before each time, I think this is the end of Trump. Because now, oddly, he is asking for love. I mean, I think he's, in general, he's comfortable with hatred. And, I mean, it's, you know, I think... I think what's interesting for me, I guess I've said this before, is that, you know, in the book, I try to argue that the only thing that that will save us from Trump's destructive tendencies is are an even more virulent self-destructive impulse. And I feel like that we're coming close to that now. I mean, I keep saying that, hoping that his, you know, his sort of Oedipal, you know, that he has to fulfill the fate that was that was written into his DNA as a child. And that in a way, you know, I mean, it's not a coincidence for me that the country is called the fatherland, you know, when people think, you know, pater, patria, you know, that there's this father and the the fatherland, Trump is in fact, you know, has 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 German origins. And in a way, you know, Trump's father despised him unless he could provide, you know, monies for the family coffers. In a way, there's a sense in which the Trump that the family now or the father or sorry, the country despises Trump now in a way that I mean this is all kind of armchair psychology, but there's a sense in which Trump is fulfilling the destiny that was written into his DNA as a child, which is he's finally being reviled by the country in the way that his father reviled him as a child. I mean, do you buy any of that? Do you think, I mean, is there, I guess that what is interesting to me is he's created this chaos. The chaos has come back to him that you reap what you sow. And there's a very profound sense for me in which Trump you know, when he consorted with uh, Stormy Daniels, you know, he asked her to spank him, you know, and I feel like he's finally getting the spanking. With with the, with the cover of Forbes. Exactly, Forbes with, with uh, Trump yeah, I mean, on the cover. I mean, it's all, you know, you know, I am interested in Trump as this open, bleeding, sore wound that nowhere in the history of the Republic has there been such a manifestly broken human being? To me, the idea of the president of the United States, at, to me, conceivably, the most extreme crisis in the country, shy of possibly the Civil War, who stands in front of, of cameras and says, nobody likes me, um, that is an open, manifestly bleeding, sore, psychic wound. I mean, he is, you know, obviously the opposite of Obama, who, if anything, was almost too dignified, too class, you know, quote, classy, too sober. And that basically, like, that is just unusual. You know, in a way, it's the oprification of the country that everything is finally, you know, mommy and daddy issues. And to me, the idea that the president of the United States is this open, bleeding, sore, festering psychic wound like there's hardly an hour that goes by in which trump does not seem like you know he it's such a manifest cry for the intervention the intervention of a therapist that he's so broken the country is so broken 
And I guess the point I keep on hammering that I don't feel like people have said enough is it is precisely what connects him to his populace. And I think something I've talked about a lot is people who tend to be massively iconic tend to contain the culture's contradictions. Think of Jesus, Madonna, Elvis, people who are hugely mythically iconic, they tend to contain to an almost impossible degree the country's profound or the the culture's profound contradictions, you know, and that Trump in a way is both rich man, even though he's not particularly rich, in fact, but he's both plutocrat and utterly broken, mewling baby. And I think it's impossible to overstate the degree to which, say, a Tulsa rally attendee can't access his or her own brokenness, but that they really do connect with Trump's wounded. You know, he, he spent 15 minutes at the Tulsa rally talking about why he had trouble walking down the, um, the, um, the ramp at West Point. I mean, the idea that you would spend 15, I mean, that's in, that is literally insane. And so here's a theory that I, I want to throw out there that I think connects to what you're saying. And I think it, it, so one of the things about your book that I loved when I first read it was I thought this is like a mirror. It's a, it's, it, you know, you're, nobody hates Trump more than Trump. It's a mirror though to the culture. I mean, the way you've written in a collage form, it's, I just remember reading it, thinking about the culture I was a part of that created this reality, exactly. right? And that's what, I mean, that's the beauty of the book, right? I mean, it, 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 if you're a thoughtful reader and you put the time in, it, it gives you a really good mirror for like, where are you in this story? Which is, which is what I loved about it. You mean, it. where are you? Like you, Scott? Right. Me. Where am right. I? Where Where am I, right. Scott Jones, in this story? Right. And like, where are you? How do I? How have I? Where are you? Because I think I know where I am, but where are you, Scott? For you, like, do you do you find well, yourself I mean, complicit I mean, I mean, in some way? I don't know. Here's the thing that I I don't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not a Trump supporter, right. obviously, and I, I I've been, you know, I mean, I I've been fairly vocal about that. Anybody that listens to this podcast, I mean, I, again, this isn't a sort of gotcha question combative cable news kind of podcast but i mean anybody that listens to the show for a little while will get a sense that i'm not you know i'm not a trump supporter obviously but i wonder okay so i look at the tribalism the thing that fascinates me about our political moment george hw bush i think was 20 points down to dukakis coming out of his convention and won like 40 states so that many people were open to considering ideas and stuff and now i think that the tribal politics does our identity work for us. So like, so what you do, if, if you, if you've got these open psychic wounds, right. The the politics becomes the blood sport that kind of is your therapy. So instead of of grappling with, with my fear and anxiety, what I do is I go to the Trump rally or I watch it on TV and those damn liberals are, and you know, and, and I have friends who are professionals, you know, upper middle class people that are, who, have affluent who they're i mean who sound like borderline white nationalists wow. right now like once once and and these are not people right that are extremists right i mean you look at everything these are people that grew up in posh suburbs um of metro philadelphia in new york and yet you get them they have a few drinks and we're watching cable news or something and all of a sudden this kind of th- this thing comes out right what like, will they say the, will they say like anything to preserve white I mean, how how would they phrase it? it it's it's kind of like general prejudice stuff with those people, and they're not working, and this is Trump, and I mean, people of color, and things about like, I mean, there there are statements that 
in polite company, normally they probably would not have sure. said, right? And Trump has given them permission. That's crucial, and, you know. I, I think I think to be like, and, and so, it, and again, I think that that in anxious times, and again, when we have huge swaths of the country who are, you know, the, the thing that blows me away. I think we might have talked about this last time. I'm not sure, but like, so Hillary Clinton won one sixth of the counties in this country, one sixth, wow. right? But sixty eight percent or sixty nine percent of the GDP was in that one sixth of the county. That's fascinating. So I mean that how this is the thing. How do we not in civil war right now? Right. When when basically five sixths of the counties in the country, you know, have like thirty percent of the GDP. Right. And so and, and, and again, so Trump is the perfect guy to come into that. And sort of, you know, th- this is, I mean, Trump is kind of the a- anti-Andrew Yang. I really liked Andrew Yang in the debates because I thought he was talking about all these complex issues and in the economy and universal basic income and really trying to grapple with macroeconomic issues that are shaping the country. And nobody gave exactly. a shit. Exactly. Like, I mean, you know, like, everything was like, wah, wah. Right. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for playing. Here's your case of turtle wax. I think that's, I, but, mean, I mean, that's. I mean, you're making so many great yeah, connections. I mean, finish your thoughts, Scott, because you're on such a good, a good roll there. Well, I, I just think that, don't you think that, though, is is the issue, like that the people's anxiety and struggle. And again, you you look at, at, at um, you know, there's all these articles that have, have said, like, you know, the thing is in the blue states, they live red, right? So if you're in a blue state like Massachusetts, New York, you might have all these, you might sign, you might sign off on transgender story hour and all this stuff, but basically you live a pretty conservative lifestyle, right? And, and the blue states have lower abortion rates, they have lower drug abuse uh-huh. rates, they have lower. And so if you're in the red state, you might be religious right oriented, but, but there's higher teen pregnancy, God, there's higher, fantastic. there's opiate crisis, there's all this. There's all this stuff. So, so then, you know, Trump becomes the bomb in Gilead for all that, right? He kind of comes in and tells you that all these struggles, your personal systemic family issues, um, which are, you know, com- compounded because you have all these systemic social issues, the anxiety about the economy, all this stuff, don't worry about it. It's, it's their fault. That's- and we're making America great again. And we're going to do, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to get all these jobs back and everything's going to be, and again, you, you sort of give yourself permission to believe the lie, right? And say, okay, because- Again, like people that go to the rallies aren't idiots. They know the wall's not right. being built. Like they know. I mean, but again, we've talked. That's before. the WWE. It's the, it's the sort of, yeah, it's, it's the guilty pleasure. You allow yourself permission to be deceived that, because in the deception you get the psychic pain. Beautiful, right? Like, with all this pain, I can point to people that are to blame. Exactly. It's the people in New York. And it's the people in the you know, and, the, and this is you know, it's 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 the Mexicans. It's people in New York. It's liberals. It's this. It's the. It's 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 you know whoever the global elite, all right. this stuff. And so at the end of the day, Trump. I mean, it, it's interesting because if you look at like nationalist movements in Europe, they, I mean, they have to at least offer. You know, they, when they often pair like the anti-immigration xenophobia with offering government benefits. You know, right. like, okay. And when we stop immigration, we're gonna get you better healthcare and better schools. Only in America can you get national socialism without the socialism. Right. <laughs> like, all he has to do is preach the nationalism, and people rally around Amazing. Him. I mean, God, so many great points there. I mean, one, one time I was giving a reading from the book, and this person came up to me who teaches – I think she teaches at Cal State Sacramento, and she just said – I thought that she, she summarized Trump so well. She said, you know, Trump is an assault on discourse itself. That's really the key to Trump that, you know, when you speak about Andrew Yang, you know, who, you know, you might have liked him slightly more 
than I did, but he was offering coherent, cogent, analytical contributions to America's crisis. And that what Trump understands is that politics is theater by other means. I mean, that it's, that it's, it's pure theater. And that's, it's what drives me crazy about, you know, I'm as guilty of watching MSNBC as the next person, but, yeah, but they too. don't, they don't get it. They, all this, con, all this, and yet I don't have the answer otherwise. I mean, the, among my favorite lines in the book is from, I think I quote someone who's, I think it's my friend, Andrew Alsher, who says, uh, you know, the Republicans are playing ice hockey and the Democrats are playing badminton. I mean, that's sort of the essence of it for Trump is that he understands that for his base, as you said, it's pure blood sport, it's pure theater. And that I think, you know, it goes to that. I mean, I mean, so much of what you said, just it connects it all up so well, because there are these impossible contradictions, as you said, the red states are living blue lives, and the blue states are living red lives. And that, that we need some miraculous quack salesman who somehow squares that circle. And, you know, Andrew, Andrew Yang, as you know, is trying was is trying to do it in the sort of analytical discourse. But America is so far beyond such analytical discourse. And for Trump, it's pure political theater. Like for like, I mean, in a way, this is a a much quoted trope. But just think of this moment, Trump's announcement, he's coming down this sort of gold escalator, he's got Melania on his arms, you know, as you know, some eye candy, and that there's all these people who were paid to be in the audience in the atrium of Trump Tower. And then Trump goes to, of course, Mexican rapists. And I mean, that's a pretty, that's, that's pure theater, obviously, that you get both, you know, if we're going to preserve our, our women, and if we're going to preserve our pseudo gold escalator, and that you go quickly to, I mean, that's, it's all right there, that amazingly rich contradiction. I mean, I, I think of that phrase, you know, from that Neil Postman book from the 1980s, amusing ourselves to death, you know, which is a kind of a, you know, a good book is somewhat narrow-minded and polemical about television. But, you know, I think that's what Trump gets, that we that we are, you know, that we live, you know, in this dying culture, that we're very aware of our human mortality. There are pockets of quasi-religiosity in the culture, but in many ways, people are living a relatively secular, secularized lives, and that he's going to deliver amusement, you know, and I think, you know, that's an amazing statistic you had about how Hillary took one sixth of the counties and those counties produce 68% of, of GDP. And that's, and that how in the world could you explain that? And I think, you know, I, I was, I go back a lot to that amazing line of his about McCain, you know, people thought his campaign would be over, but he said about John McCain, you know, how dare you criticize John McCain, you know, and Trump had this line basically, you know, I prefer, I, pre- I prefer my war heroes who aren't captured or, ha- or yeah. captured. Yeah. And like, that's not something you can say in this culture. And, 
But this but is the shameless that, thing. This is your quote, right? This is the shameless thing. If if you have if you if everybody thinks you're shameless, you can be. Exactly. Right. So there's so you can do whatever you want. If if there's if, there's so much baked in the pie with him, right? That you he can do whatever he wants. I mean, it's you know the it's other remarkable. thing. I, think is I mean, it's like, he's like a in a way he's like a great transgressive artist or a great transgressive cultural performance artist. You know, you think I'm sorry, I didn't didn't mean to interrupt Scott. Go ahead with what you're about. I mean, I I do want to get to his line about. Um, about Putin and Giuliani, but um, I mean, it, like, well, I just wanted to get at this thing that you said because this is to me the big one of the big issues to grapple with, and this is the kind of space where we could grapple with it. And you're not going to grapple with this on MSNBC or even PBS. Right. Andrew Sullivan has grappled with it a little bit of late, but you say anything processed by memory is fiction, right? And so you've got this kind of postmodern tone there, um, but you don't, you're not like a complete relative. You you think there are truths and real discoverable truths. I think. What postmodernity? I mean, Andrew Sullivan just came out with a, a blog post about this, uh, I think today, and he was talking about how basically postmodernity taught us to interrogate the stories we tell, tell for power, interest, and things like that. But he said the, the interesting thing is liberalism can incorporate postmodernity and critical theory, but critical theory can't incorporate liberalism, right? That it, it often it, it, that, that, that classical liberalism has room for lots of different kinds of discourses. What's interesting is. Generally, the people who were telling the postmodern story were kind of left of center in the interest of giving people who had marginalized voices a voice, like realizing that as we process memory, we have nostalgia and power games and things, and and we it, you know we have to be critical about that stuff. Trump has weaponized it to the nuclear option, where he I and mean, this is the thing where he's I mean there is no truth anymore. There's no reality. I mean every I mean it, 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 it's a fascinating thing that that somebody who sort of stands against everything that the kind of postmodern impulse would would be sympathetic to has turned it on its head and weaponized it in a way that I, I don't know. And I don't know how you put the toothpaste back in the tube at this point. I mean, I because it's not going to go away. I mean, even if Trump loses the election, he's going to be on Sean Hannity every night doing the shtick on Fox and Friends. He'll probably run again in 2024. Republicans that think, oh my gosh, we're going to, you know, we made our Faustian bargain and then we're going to take the party back. We want our... Now this is going to be now that the Republicans have kind of wed themselves to the no truth reality. That, that's I mean yeah I'm really eager to read that Andrew Sullivan piece. That sounds really good because I heard he had he was fired or he he quit from New York Magazine. Where is he based now? He's just doing stuff right. online. He's just it's subscription. I'll based. definitely check that piece out, which seems sort of relevant to this film I'm 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 working on with some friends called How Do You Know What You Believe, where we interviewed a lot of people at a nonfiction now writing conference for people who are doing work in nonfiction. And the whole film is trying to connect up, you know, the history of subjectivity, modernism, postmodernism, and post-structuralism from essentially sort of Dostoevsky to Foucault, connecting that to the contemporary crisis in nonfiction, and then, of course, making that huge leap that, that you just did, which is to connect up, you know, the radical subjectivity of, of postmodernism and post-structuralism with clear political theater on, you know, Trump's part and Putin's part. And, and that really fascinates me and obviously, you know, terrifies me because I think there'd be a way to misread Reality Hunger, this book I published 10 years ago, and see it in a way as 
uh, a strange way, like a blueprint for a Trumpian political strategy. You know, I think the book is 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 more complicated than that, and it tries to argue within a philosophical context for the difficult nature of truth telling, but that I'm arguing for it in a political and philosophical and literary context. And I'm not saying truth is unknowable. I say it's, you know, extremely difficult to arrive at. And, um, you know, that that's in a way the other trillion dollar question, to what degree is this unbelievably conscious strategy on Trump's part? I mean, in a way there's this, I don't know if you know Adam Curtis's wonderful documentary films on BBC, like hypernormalization and the power of nightmares. And it felt like a kiss, but in one of them, I believe it's in a hypernormalization where he explains how this, this person in Russia who had been kind of a well-known avant-garde performance artist. I think I actually even talk about this in the book. He introduced Putin to the idea of, I think he calls it, asymmetrical warfare or nonlinear storytelling. Basically, he, he showed Putin how to take all of the tropes from kind of postmodern performance art and use them in a political context. And that basically the point isn't, the point is to so bamboozle people with so much information, so many competing narratives, say at 2 p.m., something that you contradict at 3 p.m., that after a while, people give up and they have no idea where truth is. And it's hard not to see that as, you know, pure Trumpian strategy. And again, the, it's fascinating to me to what degree there's an intellectual cabinet behind Trump who has taught him how to do this, or to what degree it's pretty natural to him. He's been, you know, a bullshit artist from the age of uh, 12 or so, or even earlier where he would be gaslighting his brother at, you know, when Trump was seven, he would, you know, he would essentially gaslight his brother when, when they were young children. So to me, what, I mean, some of these connections are really amazing in which Trump's natural tendency to, I mean, to me, it's just really interesting. Like when, you know, the, let's just say, you know, the Access Hollywood tape comes out you know, everybody says, okay, that's the end of the campaign. There's absolutely nothing we can do about it. But Trump just says, you know, he just says out of nowhere that I don't think the voice on the tape is me. (laughs) It's like, you know, like, and I think to me, that's sort of a key moment. And Steve Bannon enabled him though. I mean, I've heard reporting on that meeting and he was going around the room and Ryan's previous is like, sir, you've got to leave the campaign and we maybe let Pence take over or this is going to be the worst thing in history. And, and he says to Bannon, what do you think, Steve? It, what do you think of my chances of winning are now? He's like a hundred percent. And he's, and Trump laughs and, and he says, look, cause you're Donald Trump and they're not. So screw them and let's go do a rally. And it was kind of like, I mean, I think this is the strange thing, right? I think that, that you have this strange combination of the of the kind of whatever the narcissism or whatever kind of issues Trump has, but then his enablers, right? So even in that moment, Trump for a moment did think he was sunk, right? But then the enablers got around him, and then he was able to convince himself again to to the point where a couple of weeks later, I mean, that whole thing about it doesn't sound like me in the tape. That was like a couple of weeks That's later. True. Like it, it took him a couple of weeks, but even like with the enablers. It might have taken a few weeks, but he convinced himself 
of the non-reality. Right. And that's the power. I mean, the combination of this weird narcissistic massive personality and then the enablers that keep continue to prop him up. I think there's so I mean so much that's great there that one thing is I think this came in too late for me to include it in the book where Tr- Trump said somebody asked me like how do you handle this 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 media storm? I mean isn't it exhausting to be, you know, and this was maybe even before his presidency or toward when he was in a campaign, you know, did most normal people face, you know, like maybe a writer on a book tour, he or she feels often exhausted by the end of doing, you know, 14 interviews or whatever. So the person was asking, like, as if you were speaking person to person, you know, how do you handle this, this, you know, this, this media storm? He goes, I am the storm. You know, to me, that's such an amazing movie is so absorbed televisual um, material that he's in many ways he is is made of a television set and I think to me the whole moment to me this is where among the parts of the book I like are my relatively even-handed critique of you know academia of contemporary mass media of contemporary film and TV in the sense that there's the only reason Trump works is that and, you know, and maybe this is close to the, the Louis Theroux stuff, but it's there's so much politesse in the culture that is so fraudulent. I mean, that women I mean, most men, I would hope, don't say what Trump said on the Hollywood access tape or access Hollywood tape. But most women know that there there is that men speak, you know, in a certain way in private with each other in a way that might be less than adorable. And maybe women speak about men in a way. And I think the reason that Trump sort of works, you know, is that, you know, there's just something so exciting about somebody, you know, you watch somebody like Jerry Nadler or Chuck Schumer, you know, on cable TV, and they they speak in constant euphemisms. They speak in utterly vetted language. They speak in this sort of odd kind of liberal humanist tradition, and they're and that you know Trump feels in a strange way like a prison break, you know when you know Trump spoke positively about Putin in some context, and I think he was being interviewed by Chris Wallace, and he's you know he basically said you know Chris Wallace said, but he's let's see do I have let's see. And he said he's, you know, that Putin's a killer and that and that Trump said, you know, that we have plenty of killers, too. You know, nobody's so innocent. I mean, in a way, that's a philosophical stance. And in a way, that would be something that in a way Noam Chomsky would say, like, you know. But, but, but it's, so when Trump says it, it's completely amoral, that's the thing that's interesting about it, right? It's because it because if Chomsky would say it, he's saying it to for the sake of American critical self-reflection, right, right. right? When Trump says it, he just says it because he likes thugs like Putin. Like, I mean, it's not like it's it's interesting that you could say something that's that true and yet that amoral, right? I think that's key. I mean, that was something that El Doctora said that I wish people talked about more, which is the utter amorality of New York City. That all that that matters. I mean, I guess maybe that. Maybe the whole cultural is amoral, but he was explaining how you have to understand that there is something deeply amoral, not 
immoral or moral, but amoral about New York City, you know, and that in a way, I think way too little is given to how, I mean, I really, if Trump were from, say, L.A. or, you know, he'd be understood to be an L.A. narcissist. If he were from Chicago, he would be understood to be a product of, you know, the corrupt Chicago regime. If he were from Florida, he would be understood to be part of um, some kind of Florida depravity. But to me, it's weird because I have such a weird conflicted relationship to New York City that it's so weird how little is given to how much he is a rather crystalline product of New York City. I mean, he is, you know, the New York City pretends that he's not among them, but he, in a way, I mean, he got New York City in many ways, loved him and created him and, and, you know, that he got, you know, he got away with almost literal murder for decades. And, but I think it was a sort of, I think people kind of wink and a nod and knew, like Bloomberg said, people laughed behind his back. And I think, you know, I, you talk a lot in your book about Howard Stern and I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. And, you know, Stern has really, I think, felt tortured about his legacy with Trump because he said Trump was the best guest because he would, he would come in and say these absurd things like, well, the real nines and tens aren't Angelina Jolie, they're waitresses in New York. And like, I mean, and, and, and it's funny because Stern would always call him Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump. And now he always just says, well, Donald doesn't realize Donald, but he kind of was playing like shtick, like Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump. Like, but like, it's clearly Stern was doing it kind of all tongue in cheek, right? I mean, he's, he's kind of, he's got the, 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 he's got the sort of um, tempest in the teacup in his studio and he's having a great time with it. And he's doing this like, but you know, then, you know, there's nobody thinks this guy's going to become president, you know, like, so th- this is the problem, right? Because you, we look at this guy and, and, and you're having fun with him. And I mean, Stern said, you know, it's interesting because he said that basically Stern, Trump asked him to speak at the Republican National Convention. And Stern said, I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter. I was in 2008. I mean, for Obama, but that was really, and I can't do it. And he's like, Donald, why do you want to be president? This is going to ruin your life. You have the life you love. Like you get to play golf. You get to do these business deals. This is going to ruin your life. You're not going to be happy as president because you're going to have your life controlled. You're going to, you know, like I think normally a normal person that's decent that runs for president realizes that, okay, I'm giving, look, it's, there's, it's a great gig on some level, but I'm giving away my right to be a normal person. I'm giving away my private life. I'm giving away for public service. Right. I'm I'm giving it up to to do something for the country to really kind of try to serve the country, and I don't think Trump has those kind of moral taste buds, right? And so I think Stern was right. Like this is probably has ruined Trump's own narcissistic kind of id-driven life. I think, yeah. Right? In, in in that now he's got the Secret Service and this, and he's got to think about you know other. I mean, it's it's really a. I mean, I think Stern was pressured on that, and it, I, my guess is Trump is probably on a day-to-day basis, pretty miserable. I think that comes through. I think he he was, I know that he, I mean, I do want to double down on the whole Stern thing, which is that, you know, I've said this before, but I think Stern was an absolutely crucial form of influence. I mean, as was obviously Roy Cohn, but that Stern, basically what, I don't watch or listen to Stern anymore. I, I went through a big Stern phase, but I think one thing that one, one learns from Stern is that 
the only way to be a good guest on Stern is to keep saying increasingly outrageous things, you know, to say, try to entertain Stern by saying, yes, I want to have sex with my daughter because it just makes for good radio. Whereas if you're, you know, if you're a more milquetoast guest, you know, you just sort of say, you know, the whole point of Stern, I gather, you know, to get off your talking points. And Stern, I mean, uh, Trump would say increasingly outrageous things. And that he learned from Stern, you know, the only thing that's boring is being boring. Like you have got, you know, you've always got to be raising the stakes in this incremental way. And that, you know, that he obviously learned from Cohn, never apologize, never back off, always be on the attack. Then you marry that to to Stern, which is, you know, it's like that wonderful line by Henry James, of all people, who said, you know, there's only one rule, never be boring, you know, which is like Trump understands that and that he is, you know, as I've said before, and as you've said before, and maybe as many people have said before, he 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 understands that the coin of the realm is is to say increasingly transgressive things. And I'm trying to think of the most recent one. I mean, they just happen virtually daily. But um, I mean, to me, it doesn't get any more outrageous than, you know, 150,000 people have died under his watch due to COVID. And you could, I don't know what kind of numbers, but at the very least, you could argue tens of thousands of people have died at his, on his watch because of their misgovernment, if that's a word. And to then say, you know, nobody likes me is just fascinating political theater. It takes, you know, 320 million people and reduces it down to the tiny space of his of his brokenness. And I just think that's something utterly n- But 35% of the country are going to sympathize with. See, but see, are, are gonna, but see that's what that's what's amazing. That's what's, that's what's that's amazing. That's what interests me. It's like I think it is around 35%. And I guess that my argument, which is neither true nor false, but it's simply my intuition, which I would say on Trump has generally proven approximately correct, is that, that my essential argument, you know, as I've said here before, and in a way I've already said here in this conversation, is that he, it's not so much that Trump's brokenness is a problem, it's that his brokenness, his woundedness, his narcissism, his vanity, his self-loathing are weirdly what connect him to his his base in that they too are broken they don't know why just like trump doesn't know exactly why and it's absolutely thrilling to see his open wound turn into venom anger violence and revenge i mean that's a lot you know that goes back to my argument about jesus and madonna and elvis that the biggest iconic figures in a culture contain the culture's contradictions. And Trump, to a remarkable degree, contains, you know, the the sadness of, say, the unemployed West Virginia coal miner and the West Virginia coal miner's absolutely cold fury. I mean, it's this impossible marriage of, in Trump's psyche, of, you know, Victimhood weirdly transformed into cultural revenge 
on, you know, the rise of women, black people, people of color, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I feel like that's the essential bloody cocktail is the ways in but don't you think that with Trump, with, okay, you think about Jesus or Madonna or Elvis or uh, these cultural figures are revealers, right? Often, I feel like whereas with Trump, it's a concealer. I mean, it, it doesn't like Trump doesn't cause us. I think on the right or the left to be more self-reflective, right? Right. I think it, 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 you know. I mean, you like you look at the media and how so much of the media. You know CNN, whether it's like late night with Seth Meyers, whoever, like they enable Trump, right? Totally. They make Trump the entire story, totally. right? And it's not critical, self-reflective kind of. Totally. So I think in some ways, like he he's a strange iconic figure because he conceals more than he reveals, and so it's it, it, it's almost this in in this sort of secret. You, know, you and I have talked a little bit before about like, does the left really love Trump because they love this indignant anger that he 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 stirs up? So I feel like he brings out. In his critics, even some of the worst uh, in our, it's not our better angels. And so it, it doesn't make us, you would think that the country electing something like this, that it would bring us to this great moment of self reflection, but I don't think it has. I think that's beautiful that, you know, I was talking to this friend of mine, Nicole Walker, who is working with me on this film. How do you know what you believe? Trying to connect the connect, you know, the dots between, say, in a way, Dostoevsky to Derrida to Trump. And she was talking about a certain incident. I forgot what it was. I think it was the moment where there was a New York Times reporter who has is maybe slightly palsied or has some kind of um, disabilities. Oh, uh, when he made yeah, fun of him at the yeah. rally. And that, like, and that, um, to me, that's a, I mean, again, all these moments have been a lot talked about, but, um, you know, where, and she said, nothing ma- makes me hate Trump more than that. And I said to her in a sort of, you know, sort of, of good text exchange, I go, Trump needs and wants you to hate that. That's really crucial that you and everybody that, that we know freak out. I mean, he's got to be a self-aware enough performer that he knows. I mean, this is, first of all, he's, he's from the Times, so that already carries a certain cultural baggage. And then I, perhaps the reporter has, I don't know what he has, Parkinson's, or I think he's has some slight sort of palsy. And so maybe he sort of talks, maybe his hands move a lot or something. I'm not sure exactly what. So Trump imitates him and the... I mean, there's a kind of, like, who else would do that in the sense that it just, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm hitting these same points over and over, but the t- the key for that is, like, okay, I definitely get how that is trolling the left, everybody that we know in academia or journalism or media. And then what does it do for people who are, you know, a third of the country who is Trump's Trump's base that in a way that we live in such a vetted culture in which we, you know, that it, it feels like a prison break to say that, to say, to be so mean, to be so cruel. There are a lot of disability laws and there's a lot of what we can and can't say. And that kind of violence, that kind of anger, that kind of verbal tattoo. I mean, the only reason that would, resonate for you is if you had hugely underlying angers at, first of all, these huge institutions that tell you what to think, say the Times, and if you're hugely 
straitjacketed by what the culture can and can't allow you to say that we used to call such people, you know, crippled or retarded or whatever. And now there's an entire language by which it's proper to speak about these people. And in a way, the content matters less than the form. I mean, there's, you know, the the left and people like, I mean, I can't stand people like Seth Meyers and Stephen Colbert who are just scoring the easiest points every night on Trump. I mean, there's no point to it. You're just preaching to, to the choir. You're making a good a good living. And some people think, oh, gee, isn't that great, Seth? I think they're terrible. And I think they're just, as you say, they totally love Trump. I mean, he is just pure, pure gold for them. How about unpacking the ways in which, like, I want to see, like, and I guess we're trying to do it on this podcast. I mean, what psychic gold is delivered when you make fun of a reporter who has a disability? It's delivering some real psychic payload to that person in, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas, to just to take a random example, who just feels like, my God, like, what is it? I'm, I'm, I'm honestly asking the question, and I've tried to suggest some answers, but what to you, Scott, is the value? I mean, any other president, that's the end of his or her campaign or their presidency. Yeah, no, I think, I think there's something about Trump that, okay, so if you are a conservative, you look out at, and especially kind of embattled one, like you look out at, at society's institutions and the left controls by and large the media, Hollywood and higher edu- in education, right. right? Like by and large, like educational systems, like just that's what liberals, they go into those fields disproportionately, right? It's just a fact of right. things. And so I think like what's interesting about Trump is he will be a gladiatorial advocate. Like I think what, what past Republican presidents have done is sort of paid lip service to these concerns about the liberal establishment and stuff like this. But then once they get elected, you know, Reagan or either of the Bushes, they, they become dignified and presidential. I mean, they don't, they don't do these antics, right? Like generally they kind of, and I think one of the things that about Trump that is key to success is he will go and do battle like this in ways that are completely unpresidential and undignified. Right. And I think there's this, he's our guy. I mean, he didn't, you know, all the other ones said they would do exactly. This. But then they they wouldn't, or even with all these judges, right? I mean, like he's given, you know, he, which I think the judges thing is fascinating because if you're demographically shrinking in influence, well, what do you have? You have the the judicial branch of government, right? That that if you can pack the courts, then maybe you can stave off like legislative and executive action because the kind of system we have, right? And so, so just that one thing that he and McConnell have partnered on. I think is so that with the cultural antics, it's it so says to people, I'm with you, I'm for you, you know, I'm in your corner. And I think that's sort of the in your cornerness is is part of but you know, this is the other interesting thing though about the Seth Myers thing and the Colbert thing that you bring up is and again, this is what I've said I appreciate about your book. It's the whole culture is part of what has created Trump. Right. And when you're talking about the secret indignant anger and things like that that the left kind of likes to like so there's, I, 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 oftentimes I think the response to Trump is not does not provoke the kind of reflection that would help us get to this to the bottom of well, why is our culture producing this kind of politics? Like what are we? Which to me is the big meta question, right? I mean that's the significant, and we probably don't have enough forums. I mean podcasts are. This is one of the reasons why the podcasting medium is great because there's not another medium where you and I can spend like 
90 minutes or two hours or however long we want and just tease out ideas. Like we couldn't do this on public radio. We couldn't do it on, on MSNBC. We couldn't do, like, there's not a medium where we could just like kind of feel around as if we're like the lights are out. We can't find our car keys or whatever. And the power's out. Like there's not a, a very good medium other than print medium, right? There's print. And then there's s- stuff like podcasting or, or YouTube and things like that, where we can actually look for the, the look around for the questions and the answers in a way that I think like what you point out is that the media just, I mean, the liberal media almost just exacerbates the problem by because the thing that Trump can't have is indifference. Exactly. That's the thing where Trump does not work is indifference. If he can generate hatred and animosity and anger, that just helps his brand. I think that's great about the hatred, how, how much he, he feeds off hatred, even on a personal level. I mean, I think of an, another anecdote that, um, I mean, I just tried to ground this a little bit where I think I, I may have mentioned this anecdote to you before, too, but it seems like a good one where I think he's in the Rose Garden. There's a press conference and there's this sort of beautiful CBS r- reporter who's trying to get up to ask him a question. She, she's very young. Seems like she might be, excuse me, mip maybe new to the job or, you know, and that, you know, she's not some grizzled veteran. She's this 27 year old, you know, quite strikingly beautiful. You know, she's not really a journalist. She's just, you know, someone who asks questions and then does, you know, a six, you know, a 45 second thing on CBS. You know, it's not, it's not journalism. It's, it's entertainment, but, you know, you know, he, he calls on her and and she's, she says, oh, she says, I'm sorry, because she's sort of fumbling with her, her microphone and her, her battery pack. And she says, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not ready, to, you know, to ask the question. He goes, of course, you're not ready. You're never ready. And it's sort of like, what? I mean, like you can, of course, you can't even imagine. I mean, can you imagine Obama saying that? I mean, it would be actually unimaginable. He would be impe- He would have been practically impeached. I mean, like, but the point isn't to say Obama good, Trump bad. That's not the point because that's that. I don't even think Obama was a particularly good president at all. But but rather, like, I mean, to me, that's. I mean, you could take any of of these moments and un- if you could understand them, you would understand something because they're all the same, you know, calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas at the ceremony at which he is giving an award to Native American code breakers. This, the whole idea of, of breaking the dignified space, that's really crucial. This friend of mine wrote this book on, uh, on Phil Roth called, forget what it's called, but it's basically suggests, I mean, I'm not a Phil Roth fan at all, but you know, the, the guy, this friend of mine's book on Trump tries to praise Ross unrepentant childlike rudeness that there's a value in rudeness and I, I guess I would argue that Phil Ross rudeness is very very mild and very milk toast and very I would say conformist almost that his rudeness wasn't strong enough but for me this this you know transgression this violation of norms this emptying out of dignified spaces is to me, you know, it, as someone who fancies his own writing to be somewhat transgressive as well. I mean, there's something in me. I mean, that is sort of where the book became is sort of a guilty pleasure that I wasn't going to vote for Trump. I was going to work for whoever I worked for against him. You know, I've done, 
I hope a lot to try to bring his presidency to an end, both as a writer and as a citizen. But I mean, there's something thrilling about the emptying out of these culturally sanctioned spaces. I remember that that I graduated from Brown in 1978, and and my dad came from the West Coast to come to my to my graduation ceremony, and and we went to the Rhode Island Historical Society, like a a tour of 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 John Brown House, you know, and the docent was walking us around the um, historical museum and telling us all about John Brown and blah blah blah, you know. And my dad, you know, who's this was born in 1910 in Brooklyn, kind of a classic kind of Catskills vaudeville comedian is his sort of style of being. You know, he went to school with with Danny Kay and all these people. And basically that he and I just collapsed into a fit of giggles because this woman who was well-meaning and perfectly harmless, you know, was giving us the official version of American history. She was saying, you know, here's how great John Brown is. And, and now, of course, that we know, you know, he probably owned slaves and this, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't that my dad and I were making a political point so much as that we knew this airbrushed view of American history. You know, and it was like this wonderfully kind of Jewish moment where these two Jewish guys from the West Coast were hearing this very canned treatment of American history. And it's like, I actually have written about this, how that my dad taught me to subvert the dominant paradigm as the bumper sticker has it. And, you know, this is a long way to go to make maybe a fairly simple point, but there's something absolutely, you know, black magical about Trump's, his insistence on emptying out the culturally sanctioned space, whether it's giving a award to code breakers, whether it's um, trying to cure COVID, whether it's, dressing down a reporter who's trying to ask a question. I mean, these it's unheard of to bring to, to the public sphere this level of purely performative, wildly transgressive, unbelievably angry, profoundly nihilistic art. And I just think it's, it's impossible to understand what Trump does without focusing on that exclusively. And then the key move isn't to make, oh, gee, he is entertaining and it's more fun to listen to him than to Hillary Clinton or Chuck Schumer or Joe Biden. I mean, that's a given. I mean, even Laurie Moore in a recent piece, she's talked about the odd musicality of Trump's phrasings. I mean, there's something, he has a surprisingly high voice and it goes up and down in really complicated musical registers. It's like he really plays his his voice like a musical instrument. But the key point I seem to be coming back to is that, that not only is he, say, the anti-Obama or the anti-Hillary, and not only, of course, are we in an amusing ourselves to death society, but that specifically, he, he, you know, emptying out the official view of American history that John McCain is a war hero or that here's a sanctioned way of dealing with reporters or here's a sanctioned way of talking about who the who the killers are, you know, and that um, I just think that's the core thing to understand Trump in terms of getting elected, almost purely political performance art that hugely resonates with a, a decimated white underclass who feels, you know, as we've said a million times, left behind culturally, technologically, etc. And that he delivers something 
unbelievably sad, unbelievably wounded. And then he marries that to an anger. I mean, who else would spend 15 minutes at the Tulsa rally basically deconstructing 10 seconds of footage of, of him walking down a ramp where he endlessly explains how that that he had rubber soles on his shoes, so he was about to slip. I mean, it's so, I guess what's so interesting is what, what we would call, he's so manifestly insecure, like nobody likes me, you know, wah, 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 150,000 people die, they don't particularly matter, but I, nobody likes me. I do think in the, you know, bottomless narcissism of American culture and the unbelievably powerful ways in which, especially post-Obama, certain kind of under or unemployed white person, you know, feels in Trump this really powerful marriage of self-pity and murderous violence. And I feel like that's the secret sauce. I mean, that is, that's it for me. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the self-pity and murderous violence, I mean, that's, that's the, but I also think something you were saying earlier, as you were unwinding this point, I thought about the, the sanctioned spaces. And I think there was a really good piece in Vox that I I think last week that was responding to the kind of academic response to cancel culture that JK Rowling and all these academics had this kind of piece about, you know, um, I think Chomsky signed it or whatever against cancel culture. And the, the, the author made a really good case for like, look, this is just liberal society is complicated because obviously all speech is never sanctioned. Like there, there are always like boundary issues and there are always limitations. And so it's, it's often this kind of pendulum swing, right? Where you're, you're trying to figure out, it's almost like tuning in an old school radio, like without the digital thing where it's, it's easier to find the static than it is to find the pure station. And I think that that, that is part of the struggle too, because we're, again, the kind of the voices of postmodernity and critical theory and things that are saying, like rightly, that look, there are some ways that speech can be weaponized that are that really are harmful um, in in ways that probably we didn't historically think of because of certain people are marginalized. But then, how do you kind of put that in conversation with again a liberal spirit that that, that says, look, it's often the offensive idea that probably needs a hearing, right? And 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 this is, and I think that 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 the tensions there and the fact that we probably are have creeped a little, I mean, we're a censorious culture. It's interesting too, because we're at the same time, a more permissive culture and a less forgiving culture, right? So like we've become more permissive, but we're not more gracious. I mean, the the permissiveness has come with a censorious kind of, the whole cancel culture kind of dimension where, and so I think that's the struggle. And I think that's, and, and people feel, um, I think people feel the challenge of negotiating that space. And Trump just says, well, screw it, blow it up. You know, like, I mean, and, and, and he kind of, I think he gets at, he, he shamelessly, right, and theatrically gets at the release valve, right, that people are feeling like, I don't know how to negotiate this. And I feel, I didn't, I, you know, I'm getting judged for saying this. And I didn't mean bad by saying this. You know, and I think that's, I mean, you look at like, I, I mean, I legitimately, you know, I was pained by what's happened to Andrew Sullivan, right? Because I think Andrew Sullivan is the voice, again, he's different. His politics are a little different than mine, but he's a great public intellectual. And if Andrew Sullivan is getting mu- muzzled, like what's wrong with our culture, right? That this guy, that this guy can't be a mouthpiece for in, in public discourse. And so that, I think Trump just has his finger on the pulse of that. And I think you're absolutely right. He knows that disrupting that space 
it, it is, I mean, that is political gold, right? I mean, that's what that friend of mine said, you know, Trump is an assault on discourse itself, something she said two or three years ago, and it's gotten even increasingly true. I mean, that was an interesting word that you used, Scott, about it's become an increase, it's not a gracious culture. And I can't help but think about grace and what, what you as a religious person think about, you know, I mean, that's, you know, I'm a secular person and I, you know, to me, that's, it's kind of a, a tedious question, but it's one, one worth exploring in which I would say a lot of Trump's base is, I think, you know, white Christian evangelicals and, and people who at least think of themselves as, as church going. And, you know, there's all kinds of explanations. I've, I've read about how such people, you know, square that contradiction. And in a way, they see Trump as this truly apocalyptic figure who, you know, I think that you may even have sent an article to me about that, how, you know, sometimes it's almost like he's, he's this blocking figure that some, there's maybe some obscure passage in the Bible somewhere, how there might be a person who's a kind of devil figure who actually brings about Cyrus, Cyrus it's, 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 I said yeah. this. I said this before people started writing this. I said, I said, damn, I should have wrote this up. Because I said, what evangelicals are going to say is they're going to compare him to Cyrus. Cyrus is this pagan emperor who lets Israel out of exile, right? He he brings them, um, I guess he kind of, I guess they, they were taken into exile, I guess, by the Babylonians. And I guess he's the Persian emperor, or whatever, that conquers, that takes over. And he brings Israel back to, it brings the Israelites who got exiled into Babylon, brings them back to Jerusalem, right? And so he's this figure that even though he's this kind of pagan emperor, he's looked at as this deliverer because he's, you know, he, 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 you know, delivers the chosen people back to the, to the promised land. And I was like, this is how people are going to, and then after I said that, people started saying that about wow. him. He's our Cyrus. Wow. <laughs> I wonder if anyone you picked up on like- that. I mean, if someone heard, cause that's a fairly obscure reference to me. And I think that that is, I mean, it's why Trump is so reluctant to apologize. I mean, he almost never backs off. Occasionally, he'll very, very obliquely back off because he knows that his total, quote, brand is one of, you know, absolute violation and transgression. And I think, you know, I mean, I think that's, it's just a remarkable thing. And I think part of what's interesting about the COVID moment is that, you know, people thought, you know, what's going to ever bring Trump down? Because he he is, in a way, a masterful rhetorician of contemporary culture, who's even as a guy who's 74, I believe he is now, is is weirdly contemporary in his ADD and his um, preening and narcissism and all that. And so, you know, people would say, you know, somewhere reality will emerge like a real thing such as a war or whatever and then all this rhetorical thing will and i think like you could hardly have contrived a more perfect thing i mean a virus does not care about your you can't spin a virus i mean they tried for a long time but it's very difficult to spin a virus which is now you know at least as much virulent in kentucky as it is you know in santa monica like it's everywhere now you know, and even states that thought they had beaten it down, such as, as New Jersey, Massachusetts, you know, and Delaware and Maryland, are it's coming back up. And that, anyway, it, it's like you could hardly have contrived a more perfect theatrical moment whereby in order to measure, I mean, it's like straight out of, you know, of Oedipus at, 
at Colonus where there is a plague upon the land now, and now we have to see, you know, the, the you know, it's just it's just too per it's too awful, but it's also too perfect that you know it's it's an amazing trace or die into the fact of Trump's you know, in a way, postmodern attempt to remake reality, there is no truth, there is no falsehood, there is only spin, is in a way like a very like dumbed-down version of postmodernism or deconstruction. And in a way, that's sort of Trump's style from the very beginning, you know, day one of the inauguration. It doesn't matter if the Times photo shows that I had one-tenth of the audience of Obama's and I spent 10 times as much money it doesn't matter. The photographs aren't true. You know, what you're seeing isn't truth. I mean, that was the, the, you know, that was the starting gun that was fired. And then anyway, I'm just stating the obvious, which is that COVID for all the destructions it's wreaked worldwide, I think it's possible, even probable, it will, I hope, bring Trump's presidency to an end, just because they handled it so poorly, so politically, that the all this entertainment, all of this transgression, it, it it starts to feel a little bit silly against you know a worldwide pandemic, and I I don't know I I think that's I mean but do you have any thoughts Scott about this whole why and how white Christian evangelicals figure out a way to support Trump other than Supreme Court justices and abortion that's sort of the thing everyone says and then maybe this whole cyrus thing and anything any other it seems odd yeah no i think that's it i think it's a lot of that i mean i think it's i think it's it's a kind of well you know it it, the moral majority which originally i mean there's a lot of written on this um uh the recent guest i had on Catherine stewart a couple months ago she wrote a book called the power worshipers and it's all about American kind of evangelical nationalism. And she documents this. There's several books that a lot of journalism has done in this. In the 70s, Jerry Falwell largely wanted to organize around desegregation. So basically, you had these segregated schools in the South. And that was the original impetus for the moral majority. It was um, the federal government saying, well, if you're going to segregate, we're not going to give you funding and all this stuff. And and so, but then that was hard to sell. So it abortion became the issue, right? That that was easier to rally people around that sort of thing. And so I think that the, there's that kind of thing. And also, I just think, just ideologically uh, and theologically, I think that you look at the tension in Christianity between law and gospel, right? Like, I mean, this is kind of Martin Luther's great insight that, like, if people say "Don't step on the grass," you're going to want to step on the grass, right? And 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 that basically. Uh, it's only grace that really heals a person when you get unconditional acceptance and love. We know this from human development and zero to two. So, but what's interesting is most of us are addicted to to law, to rules, to control, and to and so I think most. I, I mean, the real like um, you know lightning in a bottle in Christianity is is it's like Miserage, Jean Valjean. It's when the priest gives this unconditional pardon to this guy who has stolen his silverware, right? And then and then it melts Jean Valjean and changes. I mean, this is what you see, you know, in, in the ministry of Jesus. It's when he comes face to face with the sinner, embraces them unconditionally, and they change. I mean, I remember reading when Pope Francis came to New York City, to the United States, and this one woman who said she was um, 
she was an Episcopalian and it was anonymous. It was in a New York Times store or something. And But she said, I had this besetting sin and I knew if he looked at me in my eyes, I'd be forgiven. And he looked at her as, as the Pope movie was going by and she felt this. And so it's, it's very interesting because I think that that's really the essence of, of, of what is at the heart of Christianity that's liberative when people experience that. And it's the opposite. I mean, but, but again, like most... A lot of religious life is the opposite of of that insight. So it's so you got to you know we got to make an institution, we got to control people, we got to tell them what to do, we got to get them in a program and a Bible study and this and that, and and people lose the this sort of liberative message of grace that I think is really the transformative element. And I think there's nothing. I mean, this is the the argument, right? This is where when Trump was asked, "Have you ever asked forgiveness for something?" and he said, "No, I don't think I ever have." And he even said, "I guess I take the communion. I guess when I take the wafer and the." The little bread and the juice, maybe that's an act of saying. I mean, this, this is, you know, that is to, like, this is the one thing that's at the heart of, of the religion, right? That you, that signing up means you're asking for forgiveness. You're seeing your imperfections and you're saying, and so I think that this is, and this is something interesting that I think someone like Obama knew or someone like, you know, George, even George W. Bush with some of his struggles with um, alcohol and things like, he even knew this, right? Like that this is this is the good news is here for the redemption of the soul and the, and, and and but Trump it's it's he just doesn't get it. Like he's tone deaf. But again, I think that that says something about how tone deaf uh, a, a, a large segment of American Christianity is to the sort of DNA of the message. You know, I think that, that again, I think a lot of Christians are less. Um, it's interesting too, though, because at the same time, even though a, a lot of the Christian right is pretty, I think lacks a lot of understanding of grace and forgiveness, but they do like converts. And so this is why, like on the right, the right in the country wants converts, which is why they'll take Roger Stone or Trump. They'll take people in that color outside the lines. The left increasingly doesn't want converts. The left wants purity. And so the left like will kind of drive people out um, because, well, you didn't, you're canceled now. You had the wrong, you know, you you had the wrong political correct ideal or whatever. But the right, even though it lacks some grace, it, it it's big on conversion. Like and, and converts and bring, which is why I think you can accommodate Trump. Like, hey, we got the ultimate Trump. We look at this guy. We got a reality star, and he's our guy now, right? I mean, that's that to me is that the amazing thing about the American right is its capacity to accept converts. That's lovely. I mean, that you made such great points and connections vis-a-vis the right's purity and the left's open to conversion. I mean, that's really interesting and somewhat depressing. I think um, probably have anything else to say, Scott, as we as we wrap up. I mean, I, I've you know. Um, I want to ask you sure. one question though. I, that I that I'm wondering how the book would have been different. It would have been different if you wrote it after COVID. Well, you probably would have written it more quickly because you'd have time because <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody can go out. But I mean, with that, do you think? I mean, because I mean, I still think the book holds up by and large. I mean, I think you have a good, a pretty good psychological portrait of Trump there. But would it been? Do you imagine it would have been different? And had you had you written the book this year? Interesting. Like I try to go. I can't even re- remember exactly when it came out. I think 2018, I don't remember. But anyway, I spent about a year. I think I started it around somewhere in tr- Trump's, during the campaign, I sort of started keeping a journal. And then it came out, I don't remember when it came out, maybe a year and a half or two ago. And then uh, I haven't gone back and reread it. I don't have any idea how it holds up. But I I, I like the book and I, I don't, I thought, you know, I'm working with, a film editor to try and turn it into a book. 
where we're going to take some of my audio recordings, such as this even, and some of my audio appearances and some of the stuff from the book and try and run it over in a way, a lot of video of Trump's press conferences about COVID. So in a way that is bringing, we're going to use as video, the Kabuki theater of his dozens of non-press conference, press conferences around COVID. And in, so in a way you're, you're very prescient and saying, well, what would happen if you updated? That's exactly what my film editor, James Nugent and I are, actually doing is marrying the book to the moment that we're in now and seeing if it holds up. I mean, I don't, I, I, that would have been a very different book to write the book. I think COVID is so all encompassing that Trump would almost be by definition, a relatively minor part of it. I mean, I think the book might be less forgiving now. I mean, I think some people, a friend of mine said, you know, that you've done the impossible, you've made Trump seem human which I think is, you know, complicated praise, but I think that's something like what the book does. You know, you can only defeat a bully if you understand what the bully's underlying psychology is. And I feel strangely, I do, I do, I feel like I get Trump. Um, I've dealt with some bullies in my academic life. And, you know, I think as a personal essayist, I'm very interested in finding that delicate balance between self-excavation and self revelation and the way in which, you know, as I say in the book, Trump is in a way the world's worst, best personal essayist. You know, if I teach myself or my students anything, it has to do with, you know, you always have to wire everything through your sensibility. That's what an essayist does. And Trump almost takes that idea and and perverts it. But he has, in a way, an essayist impulse, which is to transgress the formal boundary such as doing a shout out to Elizabeth Warren as Pocahontas during a ceremony offering, I mean, honoring Native American code breakers. But he also understands that we, as you know, as one of 8 billion people on the planet, that we all sort of view the world for, through our own particular irreducibly subjective lens. And he really gets that. But what a, you know, what a genuine writer or essayist does is that he or she argues against himself as well and shows one's own, you know, through an act of, of grace, one tries to, you know, sort of create a self-deconstructive nonfiction in which one both views the world through one's own lens, but also breaks that particular lens apart. And Trump is incapable of, of doing that because he's so tightly wrapped, so scared to know what's inside. And so anyway, in terms of COVID, Scott, I mean, it's an interesting question. It would be a different book, probably more polemical. It would be less about Trump per se. And I don't think the culture really, there's plenty of people who are more well-informed about pandemics and other people who can write maybe a political polemic sort of better than I can. I think like I I was still relatively early on in the Trump presidency where it hit the full extent of his damage was not exactly known. Yeah, that's just what I'm wondering because I think the COVID thing, like, I mean, so much of it was implicit when you're writing, right? Like, it, it you're on the front end. And it seems like the COVID thing has been so explicit. Exactly. Just the kind of spin and the kind of, I mean, this, it, it seems like a kind of watershed mark of, of oh my gosh, um, this is how bad it can get. Like, I mean, this is, it, it, it can get like, you know, so sometimes I, I would tend to think like, there, I, I remember times in my life I've thought, well, how much does the president really matter? Because you do have the deep state, you do have the people that are career people and you have appointees and 
And like, oh, well, how, how much does it really? And then you look at this and you're like, oh my gosh, this matters a whole exactly. lot, right? I mean, th- th- exactly this, can, this literally can, yeah, this can kill a lot of and people. It, you know, th- uh, I think, you it, know, close to three times, you know, I think around 56,000 people died in the Vietnam War. American soldiers died in the Vietnam War. Obviously, a huge amount more than that it, who are, are North and South Vietnamese and French and other countries. But, you know, that basically we're, we're coming up on, you know, almost three times that due to... Right, it's like every, every two days we have 9-11. Exactly. And no one talks like, where's the alarm? I mean, I mean, and if you say it, you sound like a crazy person, like we're on the edge of fascism or that's amazing. What did you say? Every three days or every two days? Every two days. On average, like every two days, like, you know, we're getting like, because we have these 1100 death days, like all the time now. And like, so 2100 people died in 9-11. I mean, we've had 2000 that's unbelievable. I mean, it's. I mean, it's why he. I mean, it's why he isn't in the Hague right now and in, under criminal. I mean, it's just. I don't. I. I mean, I think you're right. I would be more speechless, and I. I couldn't have written the book now because. But yeah, I mean, the book. I think the book gets Trump right, sort of psycho socially. What's what is broken about Trump, and how does that connect with the pop? Is I feel like that essential take. I still stay with. I think that's right. If I had written the book during COVID, it would I, I either wouldn't have written it or, or, or would have written a more what just judgmental book. Well, I think the value of the book is that it, you know it's obviously critical toward Trump, but it tries to understand what is. I guess it's almost like that. What's amazingly empty about him, and how he fills that emptiness with violation and violence. I mean, that's really interesting to me. The emptiness is really clear. The violation is often sort of magisterial and the violence, both verbal and, you know, sort of physical, whether it's cops in Portland or ignoring COVID. I mean, that unholy triangle of, you know, emptiness, transgression, and revenge, you know, those are, those are three key moves in the Trump playbook. And I think it explains a hell of a lot. And I just, you know, I wish that could enter public discourse because I guess the problem is that you you wind up in sort of Obama land where Obama gave that talk to some some donors in the Bay Area in, I think, 2011 or something. And, you know, he basically was trying to explain to them, you know, why do people in rural Pennsylvania go right. for, you know, gods and guns and anti-gay? And he sort of made the move that I am making here, which is those things are basically metonyms for their feeling of culturally irrelevant. And he had to, um, he had to walk it back because it was getting a little close to the truth. And I, you know, I'm not a political candidate. I mean, the worst thing, I don't know what would be the worst thing that happened to me. I could be fired from my teaching job, I guess, or something, but you know, like I don't, I can say what I want. And in a way, I guess that's in a way that, that, that that my brand such as it is i mean i hate that word brand but in a way like i'm like in a way i that's sort of what i do too like there's part of me that identifies with trump in the sense that you know that my friend richard nash says the business of literature is to blow shit up and like i'm really you know there's you know that i in a way people are expecting me with each book to keep on pushing the boundaries like my attorney says that the law is is my muse that if 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 my book doesn't get into legal trouble i'm almost bored 
Like I, I have to be pushing the boundaries, you know, whether it's a critique of New York Times war photography or doing like a burn all boats book about marriage and sex or, um, you know, doing a book that doesn't have proper citations and tries to argue for a, a, re, a revitalization of thinking about genre and copyright. I mean, you know, I think <clears throat> anyway, I think that's Trump's appeal and it's why I get Trump's appeal. I, on some very visceral level, I really get it. And if I get it, I mean, if I, as different, as distant from Trump as I am, can feel his visceral appeal, then you can imagine how somebody who doesn't have the middle class income I have, or who doesn't live in Seattle, or who isn't a self-reflective writer, or who has plenty of reasons to be really angry about his or her station in life. Boy, if I can get Trump, and if I can, if I yeah. can feel Trump on my nerve endings, as I sometimes do... You can imagine how somebody gets Trump on their nerve endings who has been left behind. And, you know, that's my basic take, I think. Yeah, and that's what I appreciate about it. Again, I think because I think it's, again, as I said before, when I was reading it, 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 it got me very introspective on how do I participate in this theater and why am I, and how do I get kind of the bread and circus show, the anti, you know, you, you watch the Colbert or the this or the that, and you're kind of, you know, it, it, it I mean, there's this deep thing. And I, I think in a weird way, I think a lot of liberals are going to be sad if Trump goes, right? Because there's this, he gets you emotionally charged up. I mean, he's a, he's like cocaine, you know, he, he kind of, um, but yeah, that's the interesting, right? This is the interesting thing that, that it's, he is a weird mirror for the culture. And that's, again, what I appreciate about your work. Cause it, it, a weird mirror. It, yeah. it, it really helped me on a journey of self discovery. And I think that's, a, if we're going to heal, you know, again, I think tr Trump is oftentimes a symptom, not the illness, right? And so, I mean, your book is, is, is almost diagnostic. Thank you. I mean, that's one of the things I, I, I appreciate about reading. Maybe that's not a bad place to stop. Maybe. Thanks, Scott. It's, Anything else? Uh, it was course. so great to talk. Um, I, it's always a I pleasure, like my friend. I got some great stuff, as always. <laughs> <laughs>